right, this is the Dividend Report one-on-one special episode with the co-host, or now the primary host of the Moving Forward podcast, Rio. Thank you so much for joining me, Rio. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on, Seth. I uh, I wanted to start this conversation in the same way that I wanted to start the conversation with Corey, and I don't know if I actually did, but I, I, I wanted to primarily ask, how are you doing? Uh, it, it is 2020. There's a global pandemic going on. How are you keeping up personally? I'm doing fine. Uh, my wife and I moved um, to Northern California in the Redwoods on the coast. So it's rural. It's beautiful nature. There aren't very many people around. Uh, and we got out of downtown Los Angeles just in time. <laughs> I got to say. How long had you lived in downtown Los Angeles before then? Uh, off and on. um for the better part of our marriage, uh, but we definitely weren't down there the whole time. And we've been married about coming up on 10 years. Wow, congratulations. Um, me and my girlfriend. Yeah, we were planning to do a big party. Now it looks like maybe not. Maybe not, yeah. It's been difficult. Uh, we are very like introverts, so it almost seemed like this pandemic was crafted for us. We had friends who were going stir crazy, and we were just kind of sitting back and going, oh, yeah, this is pretty nice. Um, but given just the constant news cycle and now as we're ramping up into the election, I I've noticed my own mental health, you know, I I'm taking my own hits and everything. And, uh, I wanted to extend outwards to you, to anyone who may be listening that it is hard times right now, but things are going to get better. Um, and I know a lot of people listen to the moving forward podcast, uh, because you guys bring this conversation that is so wholesome and is so important, even when it doesn't always work out, that people enjoy listening to what you pe- you guys have to say. And I'm so glad to hear that Corey is going to be returning as a co-host to the show um, for policy-only discussions because we need you. We need you guys now more than ever. I respect what you guys did with those 130 episodes. It was really amazing. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um Yes, he's going to be one of what I'm I'm calling uh, recurring guest stars. Um, I uh, co-host is also fine. I mean, basically, for most of those conversations, it's going to be me with one other person who is progressive, or in the case of Chet, a communist. Uh, and and any, regardless, people who are significantly to my left. Can I just say what a power move that the very first episode you come out with after the breakup is featuring an anarcho-communist, which uh, I love Chet uh, to death, but the way that you just titled it, like, anarcho-communism, <laughs> like, that's a heavy hitter, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was actually the second one we did after, but um, it was the first conversation. It was, like, the first one-on-one conversation after Corey stepping down as co-host that wasn't about the breakup. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And everyone's been wanting to talk about it. I, I listened to your uh, interview with the new progressive voice, which was a fantastic, by the way. How many people reached out to you both and were like, hey, you know, let's let's mediate this out. Let's talk about this breakup, because I know I did. Most of the podcasters that we've had on the podcast have gotten in touch with me. Uh, it's given me a little bit of PTSD, honestly, because, you know, I, I've got the uh, I think they call it the savior archetype. I always try to fix relationships that are around me uh, within my family, within my friends group. And so when I when I see you guys going through this breakup, I'm just like, oh, man, what can I do? I got to I got to bring the gang back together, which, you know, I know that's not really uh, <laughs> that's a silly thing. But but no, more deeply, you guys were carrying a torch uh, that 
that had this message that we could believe in, that you guys were coming to consensus on art issues, a progressive voice, a conservative voice coming together under one banner and moving forward. And it almost feels like you guys breaking up, like it's the, the end of that message. Like if you guys can't get through it, do we have any hope for the country overall? Um, yeah, that's, that's the way I look at it too. And it is a little disconcerting. Uh, but I think we do because the, the running joke is we're not breaking up. Well, we're breaking up, but we're remaining friends with benefits. <laughs> and, uh, and I have lots of other friends too, who are progressive, who I will have these long conversations with. What I found really beautiful, and it sounds like you agree too, about my conversations with Corey is that yes, they were, each one of them are pretty long. It's a long form podcast, you know, anywhere from half an hour to two and a half hours. Some episodes we broke up into multiple parts because they were too too long. Um, but more importantly, it was really just one giant conversation over the course of what must have been like 300 hours of airtime. And that doesn't include all the conversations we had off air where we fought and almost broke up every other day sometimes. Um, it, something I find amusing is that on Twitter, people have accused us as being fake Right. You know, like, oh, sure, a progressive and a conservative. You guys are both just centrist Democrats. Come on. This is bullshit. You know what I mean? And meanwhile, Cora and I are like, dude, if that were true, this would be so much easier. <laughs> I, I feel like those people clearly haven't listened to a single episode you've done because uh, that's such a weird. Take. Probably not. Um, so would you say and I think I asked Corey this the same question that do you, do you guys think that you would have broken up? if Andrew Yang had like made it even further, like let's say somehow he won the nomination. Do you think that the breakup was inevitable or was Yang the glue that uh, kept you guys together? Yeah, I agree with Corey about this. I don't think it, that Yang was the issue. Hmm. Um, we transitioned post Yang dropping out pretty smoothly. Uh, we did it by having some of our favorite guests back on to help us, you know, transition the podcast. So we had uh, Scott Santons back on for the second time right after that. We had Tom from Nerds for Yang, now Nerds for Humanity, back on um, because we wanted them to help us think about, okay, so how do we keep moving this Humanity First movement forward post uh, Andrew Yang's departure? Um, also, Corey and I are both very realistic. One thing we have in common is that we are very pragmatic. We don't, we're not really pie in the sky people, mm. um, especially when it comes to politics. Um, we both have a healthy skepticism. Um, and so we didn't really think Yang was going to win, right? Mm. I started to allow myself to think that maybe a miracle was possible, you know, as he kept doing better and better and better. Uh, but truth of the matter is he massively outperformed our expectations. Um, and the, the, the main thing he was trying to accomplish and that we were trying to help him accomplish was just to broaden the conversation. And he was 100% successful at that. Yeah, in, in the span of about a year, I believe, uh, I just saw polling on universal basic income. Like, with universal basic income in the question that is being asked to people, do you support this? It's yeah. gone from, like, 45% to 55% agree that we need it. Uh, he's he's shifted to the Overton window in a way that I don't think has ever happened before. Um, a lot in the Yang gang right now are trying to say, are trying to naysay that. But we, we really have to count our victories where they lie. And, and some miraculous things happened. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I, it, what you said there sounds hyperbolic, but I think it's true. You think about the other big um, 
shifts of the overturned window, as you put it, that have happened in our lifetimes. Um, you know, uh, Medicare for all, right? Like, so most Americans still don't support single payer, but most Americans now support universal health care and expanding Medicare to all people, right? Mm-hmm. Who want it. Um, and really, it's uh, the Biden plan is basically opt out. Children will be covered. So that's a huge change in a relatively short period of time. Because, you know, when the uh, when the Clintons were in office and Hillary Clinton was trying to push through universal health care, uh, it was a totally different ballgame, right? That Biden has a much better chance of accomplishing than that. Honestly, you know, that the reason Obama, I know progressives like to rat on him endlessly, but truth of the matter is the reason Obama didn't go for universal health care is because he knew that it wouldn't have passed at the time. You know, public, you can't force stuff through against the wishes of public opinion. That's undemocratic for one thing. Right. So but like the point being, Yang brought UBI into the Overton window in a big way. In one primary. Yeah. yeah. Right. Take take another one like same sex marriage. You know, that took a generation. Yeah. Yang did this in a few months. It's 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 really an astounding achievement. Yeah. And, and it reflects overall, um, I think, exponentiality is something that I like to talk about a lot. Uh, alternatively, when you're in an airplane going 500 miles an hour, it doesn't feel like you're going 500 miles an hour. Uh, from your <laughs> Thank goodness. That'd be very scary. Right? Yeah. Uh, from your point of reference in time as it is passing right now, it's hard to see change. Uh, and it's hard to see things that are happening very quickly. And, uh, you know, it wasn't automation that came through and and caused us to take a a deeper look at the problems of uh, the modern age. It was a pandemic and we failed to understand exponentiality with people getting sick, two to four to six. This is a highly contagious disease. I, I, I think that we have to start grasping these large shifts in change better as a society because they're going to be happening more and more quickly just by the nature of technological change my worry is is uh in the next five to ten years like this isn't going to slow down this is going to speed up biden uh should he win or trump should he win is going to be at the helm of a of a exponential ship how secure do we feel in biden leading that ship and now with kamala as vp uh, that is the way to pronounce it correct uh uh, Kamala, I Kamala. think. Oh, crap. I could be wrong. I, I, I should know this. I, I actually saw her at a conference one time. I should know that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how are your thoughts on Biden's platform and his uh, his ticket overall? Okay. Um. Well, the main way I look at it is Donald Trump is a Nazi. Mm. And... I think people are starting to realize now that that is not hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah. And so one need have no other reason than that to vote for Joe Biden, because again, being a realist, there's only one way to prevent a second Donald Trump term and that's to vote for Joe Biden. Right. Mm. But I mean, he, he is trying to be a uniter. So Setting policy aside for a second, what I find promising about him is that he does offer a a fresh alternative to Donald Trump, 
because Trump's strategy is to divide us. Trump's strategy is to divide Americans against each other so that we won't notice that he sucks at his job and that he's basically just using the job as an excuse to loot and pillage the American people for his personal gain. Mm. Whereas Biden, when he, in the primary, it looked like there was a, you know, Yang had already dropped out. Um, a few people were staying in probably longer than they should have, frankly. They didn't really have a chance in the polls, but they were stubborn. They were reluctant to drop out, maybe because they were vying for the VP slot. Who knows why, right? Right. Uh, but it was looking like it was going to be, uh, you know, Sanders as the nominee. Biden hadn't won a state yet, but he was polling nationally very well. Um and so when South Carolina happened and he won South Carolina overwhelmingly, Yang had already dropped out. So in California, the California primary was going on around the same time as the, the South Carolina um, results were announced because we have mail-in vote, mail-in voting, and you can do it early. So I um, so I ended up voting for Biden in the primary because for me it was an an anti-Sanders vote. Right. And I think what Biden did as a uniter is he reached out. Well, I know he did. At the time we were speculating, this must be what he did. And now we know he did. Um, he reached out to, you know, like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren. He reached out to all of these people and said, you know, if you like, we need to stop Bernie Sanders. And, you know, this might not have been how he sold it to Warren, who's a little more progressive than those other candidates. But, you know, certainly Harris, et cetera, like, you know, it's going to be either Bernie Sanders or one of us. We're normal Democrats. He's not a Democrat. He's an independent. He calls himself a democratic socialist, which is not a social Democrat. The actual democratic socialists of America platform says explicitly that they see these as like social democratic policy as stepping stones toward their ultimate goal of actual socialism. And we don't want Donald Trump to get elected and Americans don't like socialism. Like whatever you think about it, we're going to lose if he's the nominee. So we all need to unite behind somebody. And after South Carolina, he had all it took to say, look, it's got to be me. Right. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the black vote has spoken. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a 40 percent of the Democratic Party. Right. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the reason it bothers me when I see kind of like white lefties attack Biden is because, you know, they'll, they'll explicitly say things like, well, the black vote only voted for him because they're being brainwashed by the mainstream media. Right. Mm. And somehow they don't notice how racist that sounds. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like black people can't think for themselves. Maybe they just disagree with you. You yeah. know what I mean? Maybe they like a centrist. Anyway, long story short, when he reached out to those people, he said, here's something about your platform I can adopt. Here's something about your platform I can adopt. And he adopted something from everybody's platform, including Yang. He took the uh, democracy dollars. Oh, OK. Which is, which is huge. That alone right there is enough reason to vote for Biden on the policy side. I actually right? did not know that because I was about to comment on how I felt like he's made connections with everyone. But the, the only thing that I saw with Yang is, oh, they had a a conversation on his podcast, which didn't include universal basic income. Like the one right, thing right. that I really, because the the only other time that I had heard Biden comment on um, universal basic income was in some interview like years and years ago before 2016. And he said, you know, people, uh, people don't want free money. They want a job. 
uh, people get fulfillment from work. He really bought into that workism claim, which is problematic to me. I, I want to tie this into the the overall kind of discussion of the uh, the zeitgeist of the country when it comes to socialism. The, the the thing that you and and Corey really kind of broke up about the philosophy behind the the country. Just yeah. as a side note, you know, you guys do better when it comes to policy conversations. Do you prefer philosophical conversation or? I think that might be part of the problem. Mm. Um, so what we ended up agreeing is that he will keep coming on as a one of a, f- a handful of guest stars, which I'd like you to be one. And mm. you've agreed to be. That's great, right? Yeah. I think that what's going to happen is I'm going to have different kinds of conversations with different people. Um, and that's just going to be based on what our shared interests are, what we're good at creating content talking about, right? So um, but I just did recorded an episode with Tom from Nerds for Humanity. He's also one of the recurring guest stars now. Hmm. Um, and he's going to be my go-to guy for conversations about like statistics and data, right? Because that's his thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Cor- Corey loves talking about policy because he, he has a big heart. And he's very, and this, this, this relates to the whole being practical and realistic thing. Right. He just wants to move the needle. He says that all the time, move the needle, move the needle, move the needle. Right. And, and so to him, a conversation with someone like me, isn't necessarily so much about understanding how I think, mm-hmm. right. And trying to find common ground in our worldviews. It's more like, what can I get out of you? Right. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That's just it's a very practical, grounded way of thinking about politics. And I think it's pretty smart coming from what considering what his goal is. Right. Right. And so what can I get you to give me? What can I give you so that you'll give me what I want, but without me actually giving up something so big that I'm no longer on board? Right. Right. He and I got really good at threading the needle on policy. Um but yeah, I, I think he's less interested in the philosophical stuff. I think he doesn't have a lot of patience for it, especially, and I understand where he's coming from on this, but like with the whole McCarthyism thing and so forth, I can understand how somebody who has had, um, let's say, less honest or less reasonable or less informed conservatives call him, you know, a socialist. But he said, he brings that up. People call me that. People call me that. Well, that's true, right? Mm-hmm. But I never called him that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I reserve that term for people it applies to. Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. And, you know, I've also admitted social democracy is the platform that he had. Federal jobs guarantee aside, which is rubbing real close up against actual socialism. And it's a little scary, right? Right, right? But, you know, most of his policies are just standard social democratic policy like you would see in Europe or Canada, right? Right. But that begs the question, then why does he call himself a socialist? And... And why does he make act like it's his full-time job to miseducate the public about what that word means? Right. You know, as, as uh, an educator myself, that really, that bugs me just on a personal level, you know, cause like that part of my day job is just educating people about stuff. Right. And uh, not, not as a teacher, but through uh, public outreach efforts and so forth. And it's like, no, that is a big deal. You don't want to have a whole generation of people who are ignorant about political science. That alone pisses me off, to be honest. Yeah, it is interesting that his decision to identify himself that way has its own ramifications. I, I normally look at it as the, the big problem has been the conservative or uh, right wing constantly mislabeling. Like I'm being told mm-hmm. now that Kamala Harris is a Marxist, right? That that somehow Biden is a puppet for the socialists. And it's like, wow, that is a really hard 
like they're throwing a hail mary in my opinion yeah. when they go with that um you know it, that that's part of the yeah especially considering the fact that donald trump is left of joe biden on trade and foreign policy right right exactly our it's, inability it's just bullshit it's bullshit I think that there is a utility in, in getting into the philosophical conversation and that um, the United States needs to do it because we are so misinformed. And, I, you know, Corey comes from uh, Canada where the conversation in other parts of the world on these issues, I think, must be different. They, they must have already like, you know, our left is their right, essentially, in many parts of Europe. So they might be having fundamentally different philosophical conversations. Maybe they're not. Uh, Belarus is now undergoing a fascist uh, transition. We are on the doors of fascism ourselves. Uh, overall, more broadly, uh, you, what your conversations helped with is like I have a conservative member in my family that I struggle to talk to, but we connect through politics. And I wanted to see you guys succeed because it gives me a deeper hope that you know I can find consensus within the friend groups, the relationships that I have in my own personal life and people who are listening to the podcast, if they have a deeper understanding on political ideologies and, and the actual ways that they work, maybe that's how we can do change. Do you, do you have faith that that's a possibility? Yeah. And well, and I, and I think it is succeeding. I, I think it's succeeding exponentially <laughs> to use your, your word. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Because, you know, that conversation with Corey isn't going to stop. It's just going to stay focused on policy, which is what it was focused on to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. But yes, you ask me, I do you like talking about philosophy more. Probably, you know, um, right. that's just the way that my brain works. Um, and when I look at when I look at policy proposals, I immediately start saying, why do they have this and not that? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of where the philosophical disagreement with Corey came in is because I'm much more comfortable drawing conclusions that he would rather give people the benefit of the doubt about, right? So like, for example, Corey thinks that federal jobs guarantee was something that Sanders preferred just because he doesn't understand UBI. Mm. I don't think that's true. I think it's because Sanders is who he says he is. And that like the Democratic Socialists of America, he sees these as steps towards socialism. And so if your end goal is socialism, the federal jobs guarantee is a great way to go. Right, right. right. Um, or even just even just on a on a um, without going you know just looking at social democratic policy because you have to keep in mind social democracy right mm. is a synonym for what political scientists technically call social liberalism. Mm. Liberalism centers individual liberty, includes free markets and capitalism. And at the time when our founders during the Enlightenment were pushing liberalism, it was a radical idea. We were moving away from feudalism and toward a system where regular people could make and keep their own money and invest it and become landowners. That was what you're going to yeah. let peasants have land. Right. Mm -hmm. That was a huge deal. Right. <laughs> and, you know, a bit of a side. what's right. even more crazy is that the catalyst for the transition from feudalism uh, to something more reminiscent of what we exists today was the bubonic plague. Um, yeah. I, I spent a long time watching this very fascinating, uh, you know, discussion from a, you know, I forget which university professor it was, but she, she very, she did a very good job of outlining how, uh, some of the most historic changes that have happened have had disease pandemics as the catalyst for those change. What are we going through right now? Uh, the yeah. conversation that you had, I, I enjoyed it. The one that seemed to be the spark of the breakup, which was basically 
which boogeyman is scarier, the alt left? Oh, the alt right. left versus alt right. Yeah, right. No, the, to, to be honest, if I'm being completely frank, I went back and listened to that conversation because I don't necessarily listen to all of our conversations after recording them. Mm -hmm. um, I went back and listened to it because I thought, gosh, was that worse than I thought? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that Eric's Twitter is a hellscape, uh, right? Yeah. And I noticed Corey mentioned that in his conversation with you. I want to clarify. I didn't tell him not to go to his Twitter. I said, if you go to his Twitter, you're going to see a lot of scary stuff and things that made me want to block him, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought about, I, I, I told him this, I didn't say it should be all fine. I said, actually, what I told Corey is if it doesn't work, if you're not happy with it, we don't have to publish it. Yeah. It's how I got him to agree to it. Right. Right. And then he, he decided to publish it. And I'm glad he did, because as you said, you got something out of it. I think the actual conversation that we published itself wasn't all that crazy. Yeah. I, I think it was pretty reasonable conversation. And at the end, we all agreed that the alt-right is obviously a bigger threat. Right. But that doesn't mean that the alt left isn't something worth worrying about. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I myself, in the conversations that I had on moving forward times before, came equipped with, uh, you know, my my very, very strong objections to the idea of a federal jobs guarantee. And even today, I still hold them. And I expect the day after the, uh, the inauguration of Biden, should he get in, uh, God save us, hopefully, um, my immediate concern is going to be that uh, we're, we're we're going to go that direction. Biden is very into this idea of you know jobs initiatives to start rebuilding the country, and to a degree, I support that. I'm not against jobs programs, but to this point, universal basic income, other than uh, pandemic relief, has not. Worked. I'm I'm very very excited to see Andrew Yang speak at the DNC. I wonder if they're going to kneecap him. He's speaking right before Biden. Uh, he has this crazy moment in time to say, look, look at what's happening right here. I got laughed at when I was on stage offering to give Americans money. And it turns out this is the exact thing that we need in order to deal with uh, pandemics, with automation, right? How much did poverty fall or how much did uh, incomes rise the, the, the month that stimulus checks went out? Uh, he has a very good chance of hopefully pushing his way through into the administration because I, I still have that concern that that type of socialism, the federal jobs guarantee, is very palatable to the mainstream. Like, yeah, yeah, workism. I mean, that's the ironic thing is right. that the people, most of the people who say they dislike socialism, mm -hmm. are the ones who are going to prefer the socialist policy, right? right? And, and so I, I started getting at that with uh, um, with the social liberal thing, right? So social democracy is not democratic socialism. It is a synonym for social liberalism and social liberalism is historically the compromise that developed between liberalism and socialism. It's a compromise with socialism. It's not full socialism and it is what gave us our welfare state, right? Um, not just ours, but in Europe and everywhere else that has one, right? But what I, what the, I, I feel like where the disagreement with Corey, where it went off the rails I mean, we do have some genuine disagreements, of course, but I think it was mostly a misunderstanding. My concern isn't that I'm worried about actual socialism as a real problem right now. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about people who are in the mindset, which Corey seems a little too comfortable with, of, oh, in order to make progress, we have to keep compromising with socialists. We have to give them a platform. We have to, you know, we have to, in other words, we need to move more toward the social side of social liberalism. And that's not what I want. I think what we need is what Yang's approach is, which is not that. 
Yang's approach is to upgrade liberalism. It's human capitalism. It's liberalism 2.0. It's still individual centered, right? And that the, the difference between a UBI and a federal jobs guarantee perfectly captures that. One of them is empowers individual citizens and the other one gives all the power to the government. Mm-hmm. Huge difference, right? Um, now look, let's, let's compare UBI also to uh, the tax and spend welfare system that we have now, which historically did develop as a compromise with socialists. And I'm glad it happened, by the way, mm-hmm. because at the time when it was going on, there was a huge call for actual socialism. And if we had gone down that road, that would have been very bad. So I think it was quite wise of liberals to compromise with socialists the way they did at the time, because that was necessary in order to preserve our capitalist system. I'm glad they did that. Right. So I'm not I'm not shitting on it entirely, but I'm just saying like the things we hate about that, the welfare trap, the fact that it punishes people for getting off, uh, it punishes people for for getting a job, right? For having income. If you open an Etsy shop and you make, start making money, you lose that welfare, right? Right. The welfare trap, the means testing, which is a, you know what, what what causes it, um, the the fact that you have to jump over hoops in order to, all of these things are a consequence of that mentality of approaching policy as a compromise between capitalism and socialism, mm. whereas. Yang is saying, no, you guys, let's that, that debate is over. Right. Socialism was discredited for a reason. We are capitalists, okay? But we could upgrade capitalism. We could have capitalism that doesn't start at zero. It's more fair. It doesn't punish people for succeeding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that's kind of where I'm coming at here is I don't, I don't believe, as Corey said in our disagreement, that we should compromise with socialists. I think we've compromised with socialists too much, and that's why our policies suck. I think what we need to do is approach it differently. And I think if I had put it to him that way, he would have agreed with it. But, you know, these com- com- conversations are hard, especially yeah. when emotions get involved. They are extremely tricky. And it's tricky, too, because I, I largely agree with what you're saying. But at the same time, one thing that I have kind of struggled with is universal basic income is a socialist policy. It's a redistribution of wealth, you know, like in its bones. It's, it's hard to say otherwise. Would you disagree with that? I would. Um, and uh, I know you said you were listening to my conversation with Chet about anarcho-communism. And so one thing you might recognize from that is I asked him, Chet, would you still support UBI if instead of being funded with a value-added tax, it was being funded by a 50% tax on all income over $50,000? Hmm. Chet said he would. And I said I would not. And that I would oppose it so strongly, I would even consider voting for Trump to stop it. And you guys all know how I feel about Trump, right? Um, and and so this is this this is this is the difference right there. Redistribution, where what we have right now is, if you have low income, the government get and and you actually get all the programs that you qualify for. It actually you can get up pretty high in terms of your standard of living, right? As you start to make money, you you fall off these welfare cliffs, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to make a good chunk of money before you're back up to where you were on all the programs. Now, granted, most people don't manage to jump all the hoops to get all the programs and it depends on the state, but certainly in blue states, you know, if you know how to milk the system, you are like with, with, with no judgment, I'm just saying like, you know, that's work, whatever, you know, I mean, that's the law. They're Mm -hmm. just, they're looking after the, but like, if you know, know how to do it right, you could be making with with uh, basically no income. You could have the same standard of living as somebody who's making seventy thousand dollars a year. And the reason for that is because once you start making real money, they start taking it away from you. Right. And the outcome is if you actually look at a chart of money 
of of uh, of uh, cash on hand, including you know valuable valuable things like access to housing, et cetera, blah blah blah, childcare and all that, food, et cetera. You you add up the value of those things. Basically, you have what should look in a true capitalist society should look like a ladder, right? Gets leveled out. Mm. So that the, somebody who's making 70,000 is down here. Somebody who's making 10,000 is up here. They're at the same level. That is not capitalist. That is deeply socialist. It is sneaking socialism through the back door. And again, granted, historically, I'm glad they did it. It right. better than nothing. And it stopped communism from happening, frankly, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. We could have a UBI where everybody gets the same amount of money. And then it's a ladder again. You right. see what I'm saying? Right. It's an actual ladder. And that's how capitalism should be. So no, I don't see it as socialist, but only because he funds it with a VAT. If he was funding it by hiking taxes on the middle class, then that would just be more of the same socialist bullshit. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree that it is unquestionably an upgrade from the quagmire of a mess. And it's, I mean, it's, it's double the, the, uh, it's doubly bad if I can speak English for a moment and say that you have those outcomes where people have this this very nice quality of life. And then oftentimes people who really do need that help are denied it. Um, a close friend, family friend of mine has been now denied twice for disability in a global pandemic, very much needs this help. And I see her struggling through it. It's enough to make you go crazy. Uh, so it is. Yeah. Meanwhile, I know somebody who is literally a millionaire and gets like uh, food stamps. Mm. Yeah. That's like, so that, that's the other thing too, is when they create these loop, these hoops, they don't even work the way right. they're supposed to. They, 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 they stop people who actually need it and fail to stop because, you know, people with resources like that, you know, I mean, this, that's because this couple inherited a house from one of their parents. That's worth mm -hmm. a lot of money, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, technically their income is whatever it is. And so now they, they have, like, and, and you can do it, the actually rich people, it's easier to hide your income than if you work for a living. Right. That's part of the reason why Jeff Bezos pays a lower effective tax rate than I do. Yep. That's nonsense, right? All of these things are the consequence of the, the old fashioned left-wing American left-wing approach of thinking, well, you have to compromise with socialism. No, no, you could create an like, let's just embrace the vision of liberalism 2.0 and human capitalism, and we can solve all these problems. Yeah, I completely agree. But if you were to strip it all down, like, the United States is not a purely capitalist country. It, you know, there's no pure system. Welfare in itself is um, is kind of a socialist thing. We could, we could take all of it away if we had a blank slate, pure laissez-faire market and then you introduce a UBI. That UBI, it's a good form. We would both agree that it's a necessary and proper thing, but there would be people out there that would argue, well, no, we don't We don't need any sort of, the, I guess, the libertarian argument, right? Sure. Um, Rudd, you're-, you're no, no, I think I think I see what you're saying there. And yeah. I, I, um, I don't quite see it that way, but I understand where you're coming from. If you think of it as, it depends on what you believe the reason for doing the policy is. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the reason for doing the policy is is because you need to take from rich people to give to poor people? Then yeah, that you're you are thinking in a socialist mindset. Now, granted, again, we're talking about social liberalism, and as you said, all modern economies are mixed economies. Mm. They are all social democracies. 
you know, honestly, true right-wing policy is deeply unpopular. I know it's, it's, uh, there's also some truth to this, but people who want real left-wing economics, like actual CISA means of production, endlessly bemoan the fact that we have no real left-wing party in the U.S., thank right. God, right? But the truth of the matter is we have no real right-wing party either, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Republican Party, if anything, has moved left under Trump on trade and foreign policy. And frankly, even on like Social Security and Medicare, he ran, he was nominated in part because he was the guy in the primary who said, I'm not going to cut Social Security. Yeah. Right. Maybe he'll, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But they elected him in part because that's what they wanted. Republican voters love their Social Security. They yeah. love their Medicare. Red states actually take more on average um, than they contribute in federal taxes. They take more in federal benefits than they contribute in federal taxes. So all those Trump countries in the middle of the state are, are the welfare queens. Yeah. That's the irony there. It really it's is. Liberal, liberal states with what Trump, well, excuse me, what um, Corey, well, that was a weird Freudian slip, what, what Corey referred to as uh, um, you know center-right Democrats, which I think in global terms is about accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Blue states like California and New York, run by center-right corporate evil establishment Democrats, those are the ones that are making all the money that are paying for the welfare of all the people who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's 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 maddening to see how low in like low intelligent. I'm not okay. That's that's mean, but they don't right. <laughs> well, like it might be mean, but it's also true. Yeah. How how do we get to this place where he says we're we're going to cut payroll taxes and people don't see that as an attack on Social Security? They don't understand the funding mechanism behind Social Security. Well, so to be clear, I actually support doing away with payroll taxes, um, but that's because I want to replace Social Security with an even larger UBI. Mm -hmm. um, Social but, Security. You know, for all. Well, you and I are going to have a long time to go into lots of details about things like that. I could talk about my healthcare dividend and my education dividend, which are ideas. I'm trying to ap uh, apply Yang's approach to completely reforming our entire safety net. So well, that it's all more liberal. If we're also considering just the fact of tech, uh, technological displacement as a reality, the funding mechanism for social, social security is fundamentally flawed. There's going to be less labor to tax payrolls from. And, yeah. uh, and you're just go that is go that's going to stop at some point. So it does make more sense to transfer over to something more like a value yes. added tax and have circular, uh, redistribution, your, your distinction it's also more fair, frankly, you know, like there's a cap on payroll taxes to, to Bernie Sanders's credit. He wants to get rid of it. So yeah. that's, you know, that's actually not a terrible idea. If you're going to keep the system sort of necessary. Right. 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 Um, but you know, it's regressive. It's a deeply regressive tax. As a percentage of their income, the lower, like literally working poor people are paying more than rich people in payroll taxes. Yep. Why on earth is the left fighting to keep that system alive? Really? So I, I, the American left, I mean, I think that's just dumb. Should that hypothetically be the case, would you have been okay with such a system if your average middle class American didn't have to pay into the payroll tax? But Above a yeah, I mean, there are limits on how how high I'm willing to go in terms of taxes on high earners as well for mm -hmm. other reasons. But yes, the thing that morally outrages me most about our current system is that the bulk of the burden of paying for the charity toward the poor falls on middle class people. Yeah, and I think that the largest, the single largest obstacle it, that stands in the way of a, a middle class person who's trying to become part of the capitalist class, somebody who wants to have passive income. Mm -hmm. Right. 
somebody who wants to, you know, pay off some real estate, rent it out, or invest it in the stock market, people who want to be free of work, or at least get to the point where they can choose to work or not, right? Mm -hmm. The largest obstacle standing in their way right now is the government. Yeah. Because it takes so much of their money. Imagine how much easier it would be for a middle-class person to become, God forbid, upper middle class, rich. Oh, God, God. That makes them a monster, don't you know? Yeah. In order for them to achieve that, they need to keep their money. Yeah. That's 100%. I, I don't I honestly don't think that the average like Bernie Sanders voter has any idea how frustrating it is to work and have the government take more than half of what you make. It's not okay. Yeah, it, just the psychological impact of seeing that paycheck and seeing what was deducted from it is enough to, you know, turn you three shades more red. Uh once you enter into the workforce, it it makes absolutely no sense at all and I see so many people whenever Yang talks about UBI, you know, they'll they'll tweet up and say, "Why don't you just cut my taxes?" And and the beautiful thing is that a UBI acts as a as a uh, a tax cut essentially for for people. It, it it Yeah, exactly. And and so all of these reasons, so I I'll agree with you Seth that yeah, you know, depending on how you think about it, you certainly could characterize uh, UBI funded by a VAT as a kind of compromise with socialism. Mm-hmm. If you want to look at it that way, it's still honest to God, moving the the needle back more toward the liberal side of the social liberal compromise that it is now by Agreed. a lot. Agreed. And that's what I'm hoping to see on the Democratic platform going into November and beyond on a scale of one to 10, going back to, you know, the which boogeyman's the scarier one. Uh, how scared are you or not scared? How concerned are you? of a actual socialist uh, type of uprising? I'm actually not. Right now, I'm not. Um, So we've been talking about history a little bit and World War II, right? So like World War II, there were, as there are now, Americans who sympathized with our enemies. There were Americans who were Nazi sympathizers. Mm -hmm. And then later in the Cold War, there were Americans who were Soviet sympathizers and McCarthyism definitely went too far, right? Like that's an understatement, right? Started calling non-communist communists just everybody was a communist. Like that was a witch hunt. That was like the Salem witch trial was bullshit. Mm. But the reason the public, it worked on the public is because the public had good reason to be afraid of communism. They saw what happened in the Soviet union. Millions of people died. It was a nightmare, right? Okay. And, and they knew in like academic circles and so forth, it was very fashionable to call yourself a communist, mm-hmm. right? So the problem at the time was bigger then than it is now, but it is con- disconcerting that there is a, a resurgence. And the way I think about it is leading up to World War II, the globe was transitioning into an industrial economy. Well, it had been for some time, but like really was just taken off. Industrialization was really changing the way that regular people's lives the way they interacted with the market, right? And movements like Nazism and communism in the, the middle of the 20th century were put, they were they were a working class reactions against those economic changes because yeah. they didn't feel as a lot of people feel today with some, I mean, they're kind of right. They didn't feel like the system's working for them, right? 
And so the problem is when people start to feel like the current system isn't working for them, they start to take the things that are good about the current system for granted. And there's a little too willing to try some crazy ideas that might not go so great, right? And and so in in the case of uh, in the case of uh, Nazi Germany, it actually this is funny. I don't know how much time you spend talking to self-identified communists, right? Uh, not just Chet, but like um, Stalin did nothing wrong. Authoritarian communists, right? If you talk to those people, they will tell you. Uh, Liberals always side with fascists. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, there is some historical precedent for that because there is honestly, there is some truth to that. And it's because if you want to preserve your property, at least the fascists aren't going to take that from you. It's not because liberals like fascism. It's because, gosh, you know, the people are rioting. They're all demanding either communism or fascism. I guess I'll go with the fascist shit sandwich instead of the communist shit sandwich, because at least they won't take my house away from me and my kids. Yeah. Right. That's what it comes down to. And that's my concern. My concern is to whatever extent, like, honestly, it doesn't even really matter how much of a real threat it is. What matters from a branding perspective, from a political strategy perspective, is how real a threat do people think it is. And if the Democratic Party allows people to think that that's a real problem, that's going to increase the odds that fascism prevails. That's my concern. Huh. Interesting. That, yeah, because look at how close we are right now. It is so crazy how far I've come from the 2016 election where I was so yeah. butthurt after they, they completely tilted it against Bernie. I thought, well, yeah. You know, I'm on, when, when Trump was elected, I, I called uh, a member who really supported him of my family. And I said, you know, this is your victory. Let's see what happens, because I was so fed up. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And now I look back at my younger self with horror, absolute horror. I never imagined that we would get this close so fast. Uh, but that's how it happens. And and uh, man, it is it is genuinely frightening to see the way this is going to turn out like. Not only are we dealing with division within the United States, but we did absolutely nothing after 2016 to stop foreign interference, uh, you know, political work. China is campaigning on the behalf of Biden. Russia is campaigning on the behalf of Trump. And we are being fed constant misinformation on social media. Uh, and the mainstream media is not helping us whatsoever. Fox is constantly trying to ramp up this idea that Biden is a socialist puppet. Uh, it is one hell of a mess that we have wound ourselves up in right now. And I, your concern right there is kind of apt. Their their biggest strength, and that's the, the tool that they're trying to wield, and you can see that that's Trump's playbook, is we have to really prop this up and, and see how many Americans we can get behind us for that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, and it's frustrating because it, it's such an easy thing to solve. Right. All you have to do is say... <laughs> I think it could pass mm -hmm. in the, 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 the DNC's policy statements. We are a liberal party. We are not a socialist party. Yep. You know, and I just don't allow socialists to run in the party. I don't know why. And you know, what's funny about that is like AOC, she would still be welcome. All she has to do is stop calling herself a socialist, right? which is only happening because despite being a very bright young woman, She's ignorant about political science. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's bottom line.
I don't know why the Democratic Party has such a hard time with messaging. I called this back at the start of the pandemic when the very yeah, they the, suck at politics. Yeah, they're much better at governing than the Republicans, but they suck at getting power. When the CARES Act was released, I was I was trying to hammer this, you know, screaming in my own echo chamber like this is the time for UBI right now. And if we do not do this, you're you, it's going to be bad. Look, look at what happened. We dropped the ball on messaging. They've turned it into this disincentive to work thing. We fell right back into workism. They could still salvage this if they said, all right, you know what? You're right. Paying people more money to sit at home is a disincentive to work. What is not a disincentive to work is uh, letting them have that money whether they work or not. Uh, yes. You know, if you can message them on that end, you can beat them. You can beat them so easily, even though it's not true that people aren't returning to the work because they're choosing the unemployment instead. Uh, and there's data to back that up. Uh, that doesn't matter. You can beat them well, because, with the rhetoric. Because the unemployment is different. The unemployment goes away when you get a job. Exactly. That's the disincentive. The disincentive isn't the money. Mm -hmm. It's the means testing. Yep. Yep. My my girlfriend got called back to work. She couldn't say no. And like, I like the 600. She had to go back. And now she's yeah. making less. And now we're more stressed. Now we're more mm -hmm stretched thin so i don't know what they're talking honestly probably about. better in the long term though because you you guys would have lost those benefits eventually anyway yeah eventually we would have it would have been an issue we were actually able to save a little bit for a few months like our entire livelihood was dramatically changed it was almost like a little test run of universal basic income i'm so happy that she could get it because i left the workforce to try my youtube thing before the pandemic there was no way i was going to qualify for that unemployment uh and yeah, so it really does frustrate me, this messaging issue that the Democrats have, because they are, on one hand, being painted as socialists when they absolutely are not. They, they just can't seem to get it right. And that's what I really hope that we're able to shift. And that's why Yang needs to be much louder. He needs to have a platform. And it's absurd that it took so much effort from the Yang gang to get him to the convention in the first place. Um, it's difficult. I mean, honestly, it's difficult to know exactly what was going on behind the scenes there. I'd be curious to ask Yang that. He might, you know, not want to say. Yeah. Right? I mean, the truth of the matter is parties need to be able to have closed door conversations about strategy. Right. Yeah. You can't have it all out in the open. Because that's how you lose. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, like when, when Hillary Clinton had made that notorious statement about you have to have a, a public like image and a private image, yeah. you know, people blew that all out of proportion. It's kind of remarkable to think about the fact that that and Obama's tan suit were the, were those, those were the, the, the those were the, 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 the big, uh, scandals that Don't people were the, used to worry about. Right. Can you Dijon imagine? Wouldn't it be mustard. lovely if we could go back to that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could go back to. Mitt Romney privately saying that, you know, I'm that there are certain people who are never going to vote for me because I'm a Republican and, you know, they like are takers and not makers. Like, OK, I understand why that offends some people. And it offended enough Republican voters that he lost. Right. Yeah. But that again, Mitt Romney voted to impeach Trump because Trump is a traitor. Right. Right. You know, like, I mean, people who think it couldn't get worse than it was before and that everything was corrupt and all the elites were bad and we're already in a banana republic. The danger of buying into that mentality is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because much like you said uh, about crying wolf about socialism, right? Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. Republicans crying wolf and calling Obama a socialist, which is absurd. 
right. would be considered center right in Europe, right? Mm. Okay. Calling Obama a socialist, crying wolf about that means that when a real socialist comes along, we don't recognize it. And that's the same thing that the populist left has done to empower Trump, yep. right? Because they called Obama a fascist. Yeah. I mean, just like, you know, I'm sorry, there is something to horseshoe theory. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a perfect model. There is no perfect model. All models exist just to, you know, look at the world through a certain prism. But there is something to looking at it that way sometimes. As we're accelerating so drastically with these these ideologies and these labels and everything, I you know I really do think UBI is the answer for so many of our problems, not by itself, and there are uh, effects that we'll have to wait some time to see. But I do have a deeper concern, and this is what I wanted to cover with you uh, today, is because I, I heard you say on another episode of Moving Forward that you weren't convinced that UBI was going to be as big of a thing, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I, I, I think what you're getting at is I said something like it will result in their IQ going up a standard deviation, which is nothing mm. to scoff at, right. But it won't necessarily make them better people. Yeah. I think some people have bad values, mm. right. And that's actually something that something else that drives me crazy about the far left is like, if you, if you, um, and I mean the actual far left, right. right. Obama, again, not far left, not even close, right. Actual far left. Um, you know, if, if, if there's somebody using the word liberal as a slur, okay, mm. it's either a Trump voter or a socialist slash communist that says something about them, doesn't it? Yes. You know, and some people have bad values and I don't think giving them a little money is going to suddenly make them better people. That's all I was saying. But I do think that it would be good for society for a whole slew of other reasons. And I do think it would help to de-radicalize some people. Because I can't help but like sit back and think uh, part of what's so difficult about my show, like when you reached out to me to ask to be a you know, recurring co-host, I initially thought that I was going to reject it for a variety of reasons. But one of them was, I mean, I other than what I've done with Corey, I was gone for about four months after Yang dropped out. Like all of my energy, I couldn't make anything. It was just gone. And really, this is not what I am driven to do, uh, talk about politics all day long, you know, and it, it can harm the relationships with the people around me because I can't talk about anything else. Cause I'm just so focused on this much like the end goal of capitalism to me is to escape capitalism. The end goal of political, um, like getting into the meat and bones of, of the system is to like fix it, have something that's working and then get my mind off of, onto something else. But then I turn and I see some of the people who are the most engaged in politics, the, the angriest Trump supporters or something, are retired boomers uh, living off of Social Security checks and uh, a nice little uh, nest egg that they've made for themselves, watching Fox News all day. Like, their needs have been taken care of. Their needs are constantly taken care of. They have not shifted into a more empathetic uh, or generally uh, less divided mentality. So I'm I'm worried that my idea of like how do we fix the division in the country will a UBI actually solve that specific problem? What are your thoughts on that? Um not single-handedly, but mm -hmm. I think taking the upgrade liberalism approach mm -hmm. instead of the compromise with socialism approach would. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a certain percentage of the population including me 
that is scared enough of socialism that if you really push us and you you, you if you if you uh, allow the U.S. Overton window, I, I you know if you if you think of it like a circle instead of a line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that you know like say the top half of the circle has liberalism, and on the left side of that you've got like social democracy, and on the right side of that you've got cla- what we call classic liberalism, which does not exist anywhere in the world, right? Because so, you know, just to be clear, the big boogeyman of the far right doesn't exist. And um, fascism is not is not that. OK, what fascism is, is it's a it's um it's a non Marxist or anti Marxist kind of collectivism. And it's very driven by working class concerns. It's highly critical of elites and experts. It's highly critical of bankers. Right. Um, so yes, they are different from each other, communism and fascism, but you know, if, if, if right now we like for most of my life and your life, the U S spectrum was that it was like, do you want to be a little bit more on the right side of social democracy or a little more on the left side of social democracy? That is a healthy and safe place for conversation to be. But if the Republican party gets taken over by the bottom right of the circle, right? The illiberal right. Um, which is not the same thing as far right. So you see what I'm saying? It's like we move from the top of the circle to the bottom of the circle. And if you're for, and then the, if the Democrats get taken over by communists, and I'm not saying there's any chance of that happening anytime soon, but if people perceive it that way and increasingly perceive it that way, what's going to happen is they're going to say like, look, if you're forcing me to choose between the bottom right and the bottom left, I'm going to go with the bottom right. Because again, at least I get to keep my house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the fringe supporters, the, the the people on the fringe that you were talking about in that other uh, episode is how how many people will you get with the messaging? It is odd that, you know, what the right typically likes to play up uh, communism as or this idea is really what a fascist state like if you're looking at Venezuela or something like yeah. that. They have the control over all of the businesses, right? Uh, fascist coming yeah. from the word for a bundle of sticks that are held together. It's it's all dominated by the party and it serves the party's interests. Christopher Hitchens, um, who was uh, an enthusiastic Marxist in his youth, after, as a journalist, you know, studying communist movements in South America and Eastern Europe and other places, um, Asia, um, later in his life, he, he wrote the words, Communism is itself a form of fascism. Yeah. Fascism with a human face. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And I don't know why they don't teach us more about this history in school. I know why they don't teach us because school is not designed for that outcome. Um, you not know, public school. Not unless you're in a very rich neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which is a shame. So if, if Chet identifies himself as an anarcho-communist... I think I would identify myself as a techno shaman or a techno shaman. Uh, and that's. You and Chet have a lot in common, especially we, when you said that thing about, you know, the ultimate goal of capitalism being to escape capitalism. Uh-huh. I, I think I, I'm actually not as far removed from you as you might think on that. Ref- I wouldn't phrase it that way because I, I think that, you know, there are always going to be some things that are scarce as you heard in my conversation with Chet, but I do agree that in a, you know, a society where people, where, you know, there's so much abundance that pe- it's like, there's plenty to go around. Um, the kind of, you know, uh, dog eat dog capitalism that we have now won't exist anymore. Uh, and 
the best way to get there is to let capitalism do its thing. Let's upgrade it and help it along the way. Yeah, I actually I do think that we we can reach post scarcity. The, the the conversation that you guys had, there were some things that I wanted to riff off of. Um, and really, this can be the dominant part of maybe the next time you have me on moving forward, because we've covered a lot of ground today. But uh, I, I do think post scarcity is an achievable thing right now. What are we seeing? We're seeing a transition largely to tele telework in many parts of the country. We're going to see a spreading out effect as people uh, get real estate in places that previously would not have worked. Uh, your point about like what's going to happen if, if two people want the same plot of land, right? I don't think that that same plot of land issue is really going to occur, except for like maybe the most megalomaniac like Trump type personalities out there. But there there's so much more land in the world. Oh, you mean like Trump himself? Trump himself. Like yeah. Yeah. I honestly think the solution to that issue is to give them both sticks and let them go at it. But everyone else <laughs> like uh you know i well, think some people like to stay put you know like my my wife um she likes to travel mm -hmm. but she likes she's a homebody and there are a lot of people like this most introverts frankly are there's a space where they feel comfortable so we're talking about maybe half of the population the human beings who are just wired nomadic lifestyle isn't going to suit them they yeah. just want to stay put they want they, they they like the emotional comfort of this is my house this is my yard i've got my dogs it's really hard to travel with dogs um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Some people just like to stay put. And that's the part where I thought some of Chet's, you know, highfalutin Star Trek theorizing as interesting as it is started to sound a little unfeasible to me. The metrics just want to have a home and they want, they don't want other people just coming onto their property. You know, some people like their privacy and yeah. I think that's okay. Yeah, I think so too. But I also think that there are doors that are going to be opened where uh, the the things that we value in real estate right now are going to shift. SpaceX sure, yeah. is going to provide, uh, you know, you could get internet on top of Mount Everest. It's going mm -hmm. to cover the entire world. You could live basically anywhere. Uh, smart drone deliveries, uh, self-driving vehicles will be able to get uh, groceries to your front door, no matter where you are. I think it's going to become increasingly rare that two people are fighting over the same uh, space maybe in coastal yeah. cities the population is going to start coming down too because exactly. all the studies show that as people as societies become more affluent they have fewer children yeah yeah 100 percent by 2100 yeah, yeah. it's not going to keep going up exponentially that's not going to happen yeah and we're actually going to be facing the alternative issue which is a accelerating depopulation and our current economic which is a huge problem yeah. if you're funding your social security through labor, or if you're funding your UBI uh, with income taxes. Yes, our current economic model uh, ha only can work if you have a growing population. And right now we are already depopulating and that's why mm -hmm. we need immigration. And that's such a weird yes. schism to see on the right because like they're so anti-immigration, but at the same time they need that labor in order to make their well, the economic traditional, model work. The traditional right, this is something Bernie Sanders got right in an interview. Um, and also kind of shows that he really is a leftist because he was asked, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're a lefty, you support open borders. And in this interview, he said, open borders. No, that's a right-wing Koch brothers thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. See, I'm for the working American. Right. right. And I don't want them to compete with illegal labor. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
right. order to just let everybody in legally as open borders would be. Whereas, yeah, yeah, the Koch brothers would be like, let them all in. Yeah. I'm one of the let them all in people, to be clear. Yeah, yeah. It, like, that's the hardest thing is like when people talk about China took our jobs. I'm like, no, no, China didn't take anything. We willingly got cheap labor from them. That's the capitalist's approach. They're always going to choose to minimize costs and maximize profits. We need Yeah, and it resulted in a middle class in the United States being able to afford way more clothing and way more electronics than they ever would have otherwise. Think about this. Where would we be in society right now if globalization occurred and we said, all right, yeah, go get your cheap labor, but we're going to tax 10% of what you have and put it directly into a... Uh, universal basic income because global the end result of globalization and automation are effectively the same thing cheaper products uh using labor i i, I mean i don't want to uh you know there's the question of is this good or bad for the the countries that are exporting that labor um but you you know they're being treated like robots essentially so either a robot's making something super cheap you're benefiting from that or an immigrant is and essentially it'll all be robots so we could have had a UBI for 40 years right now off of the profits being made from cheap labor overseas, spread out that wealth throughout America. Would we have seen the populism that we have today? I, I really don't think that we would. No, I don't think so either. And in fact, um, it was left wing, what we would now call today progressive, relatively left wing, progressive Democrats who stopped it last mm. time around. Yeah, like it actually... Um, had passed the House, this was at a time when the Democrats controlled the Senate, it had passed the House with bipartisan vote, Republicans and Democrats, an actual UBI in like the 70s. And what happened was the Democratic controlled Senate said no because they wanted it to be bigger, right? No, yeah, bigger is nice, right? And it killed it. Other priorities took over. Like sometimes in politics, if you lose the window where the where there's interest in it, it could be one, two, three generations before you get another opportunity like that. Whereas if they had passed the UBI once it was out there and it was happening and people's people liked it, people saw how it worked, it would have been so easy to increase it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I that mean, was just stupid. Where do you see <laughs> the Republican Party going if Trump loses? Oh Lord, that's a big conversation. Yeah. There are actually a few, there are a few things that I want to make sure I address from your conversation with Corey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we're gonna kind of put these as like a back-to-back, -back, you know, um, I don't know, twin conversations or something like that. Um, but I'll answer your question about the Republican Party and then I want to make sure we get to that before we yes, wrap up. Yeah. So go ahead. What's your what's your question exactly? Well, you know what? I, I expect that you'll have me on again as a as a co-host. And I, I think know, I mean, just go ahead and ask it. It's fine. We let's just get it over. Because I had this crazy thought just now, what if Republicans platformed a UBI after they got defeated in, in uh, September? Like, what if we do tilt towards federal jobs guarantee, it, it, things get a little bit worse and everything? How did the Republicans salvage their party in a meaningful way, given the change that is going to happen in the next 10 years? The face of the country is going to be entirely different. Uh, could they could they win with the UBI? Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, part of the reason that I want the Republicans to lose big in this election is because I believe that it's not healthy for our country to have one party rule. Mm -hmm. I don't want I think, the, you, you know, people who think that, oh, all the country's problems will be solved if just the Democrats never win another election or all the country's problems will be solved if Republicans never win another election. 
that is nonsense, right? Because power does corrupt and um, you have to have that back and forth. You have to have a viable party to push back against the extremes of the other party. That is a healthy, good thing. So I want the Republicans to lose big in this election so that the party learns a lesson and says, oh, you know, that Trumpism thing, we were worried that it was going to blow up in our faces. It's why we didn't like, it's why, you know, Republican elites opposed to Trump's candidacy in the primary in the first place. Turns out we were right about that. So lesson learned, let's not do that again. Right. What I would like to see the Republicans do if Trump loses is I would like to see them moderate on social issues because that's what's alienating voters on the coasts. There are lots of economically right-wing people in California, Oregon, Washington, the whole East Coast. But they are not bigots. Yeah. Right? And and it's not politically correct to say this, but all the data suggests the better educated somebody is, the less unapologetically racist and sexist and homophobic they are likely to be not that there aren't some rich rich bigots there are right it's not about money it's about education and younger generations have a different kind of education than older generations so cantankerous old guys could be the worst right Mm. but generally speaking more highly educated people people we would consider elites of society you know the top 20 10 percent you know 10 or 20 percent they're more liberal right in the classic sense they have more money, so they tend to be economically somewhat right wing, right? Not that they're heartless, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, economically right wing arguments appeal to those people, but the social issues turn them off. So if the Republicans would just get out of the business of pandering to racist, sexist, homophobic pieces of shit, they could start winning on the coasts. And then we would have a real debate about economics and get past, you know, like there are certain things that neither party should take seriously. And if you're motivated because you hate brown people or gays, like we, I think both parties should tell them to just like sit down and shut the fuck up because this is America and we are a liberal democracy with a constitution that respects people as individuals. And you don't get to put all the Jews in an oven just because you want to. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And, and so many of those conversations, like take abortion, for instance, I'm like, I think both sides can agree that we do not want more abortion, Uh, but you're not going to solve the abortion problem by making it illegal. Why do people have abortions? Ask that question. Uh, I could not afford a child right now. Well, how many how many places in the Bible does it say not to have an abortion versus how many places in the Bible does it say to give away your wealth to the poor? Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't have that problem because I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> but it's pretty easy to see that you know the so-called Christian right, which is a ridiculous term for a number of reasons. But the the Christians who vote Republican, um, you know, clearly haven't read their own Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and that's why I I think I'm of myself as a techno shaman because technology will solve these issues, not politics. We can lower the amount of abortions that happen through access to contraceptions, increased technological advancement to the point, you know. Sex education. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it makes sense to have limitations on late-term abortions. Like, 
there, you know, it's much like with gun control. You know, I support the Second Amendment. There are things you can do to reduce gun violence and still respect the rights of regular people to own guns, right? Yeah. There are things you can do to reduce abortions and still respect the rights of a woman to decide whether or not to get a medical procedure. Right. And I would honestly reconsider my stance on having a child if I had a basic financial security, basic sure. safety net like universal basic income. So. Hopefully in the future, we will see the Republican Party candidates coming forward with platforms like that saying, yeah, we don't want abortion, but we have to go yeah. at this from and, the and, correct you know, direction. Start getting the votes. You know what would happen is they would start getting the votes of Latinos and start getting the votes of black people. Right. They'd get the votes of educated white people, which are fleeing the Trumpster fire right now like crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a flaming Trumpster fire. Anyway, all right. So yeah, I wanted yeah. to get to a couple of those things from your conversation with Corey. Um, I guess I have an advantage because I got to hear that his first. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, all right. So a couple of things. He, one thing he said is, um, and I want to let you kind of riff on this too. I don't want this to be a lecture, of course. Um, but in each case, you know, like, so I took a few notes. Um, he said that he doesn't think that I care about his concerns at all. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was strong. What do you think? Do you think that's true? From listening to our conversations, is that the impression that I gave you? Honest answer. No, although I haven't heard all of your conversations. It really did seem like you wanted to flesh out the conversation as much as possible and get down to the specific details. I never heard you like completely dismiss anything. Okay, by the way, feel free to be... So, I mean, I don't see this as a competition, mm. so I'm not trying to score any points here. I just want an honest answer. Right? Well, the point of this episode and this one on one was that I wanted to try and, and come out on the other end with some better understanding of exactly what happened. So that's yeah, that's the yeah. part of the conversation I wanted to make sure we get to. Yeah. So let's table those other fascinating conversations for one of our dozens of other topics in the future. Absolutely. Let's get, through, let's get to this. Let's get to this stuff. This is I, I think right now is the time to process it. 100%. So, so what, when you said that you don't, okay, yeah, I do care about his concerns, right? Mm. I might be tempted to say he doesn't care about mine, but I know that's not true. I think that the problem is we struggle to understand each other because said, we speak different languages. We come from different perspectives, right? It was interesting um, to hear you say that. I'm, it just almost trying, felt... I'm trying to understand his concern. Mm. To this day, I still don't fully understand it. So maybe you can help me. What do you What do you think his concern was? Or maybe we can save that for, for the end after I get through my notes. But I think we should get to that. When I spoke with him, we both kind of agreed on the really pressing matter at this point is like, but, but you both agreed on that as well. You both came to the solution of saying fascism's terrible. Like this is the problem to solve immediately. It may just be that he does not have the, the this isn't, I don't know. Cause you, you said something when you were talking with Chet, how it almost felt like you were being gaslit. And if you didn't know but that, Corey, I also know that wasn't the case, right? You know well, I think it's interesting is that like, I know it wasn't the case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like, that is interesting though. Right. Cause I think part of the reason why I'm such an asshole on Twitter Right. And I'm so much nicer in one on one conversations on the podcast is because everybody is more of an asshole on Twitter. Twitter sucks. Yeah. Right. Um, and if I was talking to a stranger, especially a stranger with an anonymous name, right, like, you know, mm -hmm. on Twitter and they told me what Corey told me that. There's absolutely no problem with socialism in the Democratic Party. They have absolutely no influence. And then three breaths later, I want to give more influence to people who call themselves socialists in the Democratic Party. I would be like, okay, this is clearly a troll 
or something, right? This is not somebody who's having an honest conversation with me. And the reason I brought that up is not to make Corey look bad. It's because I was just reflecting on, wow, I wonder how many times that's happened on Twitter. And I was actually talking to a perfectly reasonable, nice person like Corey, right? right. And I assumed that they were intentionally gaslighting me, right? Yeah, I know yeah. he wasn't. I know he wasn't. I've, it, I've, I've, I've talked to him about politics for hundreds of hours. I know that he wouldn't do that to me, but that's how it felt. And, you know, from from an outside perspective on the breakup, it, when, when you listen to your conversations, everything's copacetic. But it's almost like it, it was hard to see it happen, too, because it was like you can see how the rights it always devolves into a shouting match between, oh, well, they're racist. Oh, well, they're socialist. And then uh-huh. there's, and then lefts, leftists are known for just shutting down conversations and, and like not even engaging uh-huh. at all. And somehow that happened with this podcast that uh, is so transformative, in my opinion. So, but when you actually looked into the conversation, it, it didn't, it didn't reflect that in my mind, in my eyes. Yeah. I, I, I honestly think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Corey would agree with this if you ask him. I honestly think that he's just kind of at his wits end mm-hmm. and just doesn't have the patience to relitigate things that he finds boring and annoying and stupid. Right. He, he just thinks the fast, he thinks the, 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 the socialism thing is such a, such a red herring that he's just doesn't have any patience for it. Right. Um, I respect that. I'm not going to force him to talk to me about something he doesn't want to talk about. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I think also from his end, is that there's discussion being left out. The the entire Tulsa bombing that I just learned about this year, the Black Lives Matter movement in general, has opened my eyes to understanding, well, I thought I knew, I thought I knew what it meant to be quote unquote woke, but I'm really opening my eyes to a deeper understanding. And I think he feels that that, that kind of awakening is being stifled in the day-to-day conversations that Americans are having. Uh, I'm wondering what part of the conversations that y'all ran into that he he identified as such. And I, I should have done a better job asking him those questions. Our, our conversation. I think he did fine. And I, I actually think he was, he didn't want to talk about it. He wasn't just enthused. Well, I mean, you know, because that's the whole point. So he doesn't want to talk about that stuff anymore, which is fine. Do you view me as a progressive? You know, honestly, I, I mean, progressive is, it's one of those words. There are... Like there's so many different ways of looking at it, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, I prefer the framing of everybody's a little conservative and a little progressive, right. as I've said, right. In some ways I'm progressive. Okay. Um, it's just what, what bothers me is when people act like, because it's being done by somebody who calls themselves progressive or in the case of um, the, 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 the racial tensions that are going on in this country right now, because it's being done or said by somebody who calls themselves anti-racist, who claims to be speaking for an entire racial group, right? That it must be good. And if you have any concerns about the possible negative side effects of that, it could only be because you were a racist bigot, Hmm. right? Well, that bothers me for the same reason that Corey being called a socialist bothers him because we both know that's bullshit and it just shuts down the conversation. A lot of people who are, you know, reading Breitbart and voting for Donald Trump, most of them are racist, right? But that doesn't mean that everybody who has any concern about 
uh, economic agenda that's being pushed in the name of an entire race of people is therefore racist. It's a different thing. Like there are people who aren't racist and who are also economically right wing. That exists. And so this, this thing of calling anybody who doesn't just sign on the dotted line of every single progressive, quote, progressive, whatever you call progressive, if you don't agree with absolutely everything they say, then you must be a bigot. I, I'm not going to tolerate that because that's the same thing that happened to me in the GOP, where if you didn't completely agree with everything that the alt-right Fuhrer said, then you're a rhino. It's nonsense in both cases. It's not, it's, it, it's not conducive to productive conversation. It's the greatest factor in the division that we see in our politics today. Uh, it's been growing for decades. And it, it was weird to see that occur on the podcast. And I'm not like heeping all of the blame right on Corey's end, but uh, of course not. Like we were both trying our best. We yeah, were making a good faith effort. I learned more about racism in America over the past few months than I had ever uh and and like that 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 shows a failure on the left's side to communicate properly and shutting down conversations and everything like that what what would be the better way of first how do we stop this this from happening broadly outside of the moving forward podcast going into november or are we just doomed to have that happen well, I think we just, I mean, within the podcast, we just keep having conversations like this mm. to demonstrate that they are possible. And because, you know, everybody who listens to it grows and learns from it, and then hopefully that impacts the conversations they have with other people, et cetera, right? Um, a lot of people who listen to Moving Forward have their own podcasts, right? And so if we influence the way other podcasters talk about it, now we're reaching an exponentially larger group of people. Yeah. You know, so, you know, uh, what what we say on there really does matter. Eric um, was so kind I, of... I, I would say outside the podcast, people need to have more conversations like this. Yeah. And when you, you know, again, <laughs> I like as far as I know, that Eric guy on the alt left versus alt right podcast, he might be racist. Right. Right. But I didn't hear him say anything to me that clearly was. Right. Um, and um, so actually, I, I wanted to get to a couple of those things. Um, so like the fake Democrat thing. No, like there are there are a lot of people who are what the American left used to be just 10 years ago, right, who are turned off by the what they perceive to whatever extent it may or may not be true. But what they perceive as a radical right movement within the Democratic Party to turn it into something they don't they no longer support. OK, mm. that's a real kind of person. And especially in blue states where the Republican party isn't really an option that disagreement manifests itself in democratic primaries where you have relatively right-wing and relatively left-wing all socially progressive, right? But economically some are more conservative than others, right? That's where that plays itself out. And that's a real thing. And I know Corey didn't mean to dismiss that unfairly, but I think his own life experience living in, red states and swing states. He just hasn't seen that. But that's a real thing in, in blue states. I want to I want to go on that point. Life experiences. You guys talked a little bit about this. You're a conservative in California, which northern right. California is more conservative than southern California, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK. How much of your lived experiences uh, really dictate your perception of of this problem? Like because for me, I my first election that I voted in was 2016. I don't really have those types of experiences. I keep forgetting you're such a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, 
I'm not trying to like discredit myself. I, I really, but I focus more on, uh, you know, the, the philosophy of workism and, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. When it comes down to the nitty gritty political ideologies, you guys have a lot more experience. He's been working in, you know, Pasco County demographic, uh, democratic, you know, circles. So like he's, he's seen it right. up, up front and personal. What, what about your experience? No, it's just a totally different ballgame, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and like I said, you know, I, I do nonprofit work, and so I go to conferences, and I've, I go to places where there are whole conferences run by people who are significantly to the left of the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. right? Okay. In that environment, people who are more centrist or moderate or lean a little right, like I do, economically, um, are going to, like, respond negatively to some of that stuff. And they're going to react against it. And they're going to say, I, you know, I actually don't really don't don't think that the party ought to go that direction. Do you think the size of America, we, we're so diverse, like we could talk about, all right, how have socialist uprisings happened, occurred, the the fears that we could have. Could it happen in America? Really? Sure. Do you do you truly? Yeah. Believe it? I mean, I, if you had asked me 20 years ago whether it could happen, I would have said yes. But I would have been more like, yeah, theoretically, it's possible. Mm. We're, we're watching national socialism happen right now in America. Right. True. So, yeah, it, it it is happening. You know, it's not the workers of the world unite Marxist kind. It's the, you know, evil Jewish bankers are taking over and destroying the livelihoods of good, honest, you know, salt of the earth, working class Germans version. Mm. It's mm -hmm. still terrifying and it's happening so of course the other kind could happen here that, that it it just feels like the democrats fail at everything that it's so hard to see it actually gain steam whereas you can see the ways in which the fascist movement having in america is riding off of the coattails of of like ingrained nationalism, patriotism. Somehow, if you can convince a stadium full of people that they need to stand up, and anyone who sits down during the national uh, the, the national anthem is anti-patriotic, when that is the exact thing that people fought for to protect the freedom to sit down, yeah. right? Well, so you that's can just see a symptom of ignorance, largely. But yeah, right. But that ignorance is played up so much more, uh, and it's it's so much more effective. I, like what yeah. I want to do is like sit down and look at all of the times that socialism has taken over and see what the national like culture was at those times. I feel like that would be helpful. Well, I mean, it's happening. It's a um, radical, illiberal ideologies are on the rise in liberal democracies everywhere. Liberal democracies across the entire world are in danger right now in danger of turning into either fascist or socialist um, anti-liberal um, societies. Yeah, right? yeah. So where individual liberties are not respected by the government, where in the name of one or another utopian collectivist ideology, our rights as citizens are trampled on. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and it, it is, the reason it's happening right now is because we're going through a, a transition from the industrial era to an information economy where some of the things that people used to earn a middle-class lifestyle doing are no longer valued that way in the market. People need to be more educated. Yeah. And if you are, you know, an undereducated uh, person in the United States, you're going to feel like you're getting left behind yeah. in this system. It's not because of some elite conspiracy. It's just 
history. We're living through history. Technological change is changing the nature of the market. And you know what? Honestly, if people only like free market capitalism when it works for them and they don't like it when it stops working for them, right? Yep. They never really liked it in the first place, did they? No. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's yeah, populism is is a worldwide problem right now. Corey mentioned when you guys were talking that like, you know, this socialism, it, it's not even a debate over in Europe or in Canada. No, I mean, like, so, you know, there's two ways that it can go. And, and, and Corey is right about this to a certain extent, right? To the, when liberals become afraid that the socialists are actually going to win, right? And, and, and um, take over society and destroy capitalism, they will try to compromise in order to de-radicalize them. That's what FDR did during the New Deal. Right. It didn't result in perfect policy, but it saved our system of government and economics. Yep. Um, yeah, we need to do that with liberalism 2.0 to save America from itself. Mm. So um, we talked a little bit about the whole <laughs> BLM thing. So I just want to, for the sake of clarifying, um, because I, I do, like I said, Corey and I have the actual disagreements, right? And I want you to understand what's a disagreement that we had, okay. because it's also going to inform my conversations with you going forward. Right. Um, and what's like a misunderstanding. Okay. So to be clear, 70% of Americans and basically 100% of Democrats support the Black Lives Matter movement, including me. Right. Right. That doesn't mean that I agree with everything everybody says under that moniker. So that's all I was saying, right? You know, so the people who are at the protests, usually white people, by the way, you look at videos, you'll see white people standing at the front of a Black Lives Matter protest holding a sign that says something like, no war, but class war, right? right. Well, all right, okay. I thought we were here to protest police brutality, but you're making it about class war. Mm -hmm. Oh, how, how, how nice of you to appropriate this movement of black people who are worried about being killed in the name of your socialist left-wing agenda. Like, no, I'm not going to tolerate that kind of bullshit. That's what I'm getting at. So I just wanted to clarify that. So the you, there was also something that was said about like the money that is being handled by the donations going to the Black Lives Matter movement. The people who are in charge are the Marxists, right? That was something that I heard parroted. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily, I think that's actually more of a strong statement than I would be comfortable saying. I wouldn't okay. go that far. But I do think that a lot of the people who are in charge a lot, certainly a lot. It's very, um, what I'm talking about in, in critical theory, which is a beautiful tra tradition in, in academics. It's actually really interesting mm -hmm. when it stays focused on, you know, uh, like my wife actually studied it at, um, the USC school of cinematic arts. She studied critical theory and, and, you know, they have fascinating conversations about philosophy and sociology as it relates to film and books and that sort of thing. That's a wonderful tradition. I'm not shitting on that, but there is a certain political expression, um, of it that it had, takes a specifically neo-Marxist bend. And that is way too influential in some political circles. And that's what I was talking about. I think that, I think, I think Corey just, he, he, he heard me say that and he thought, oh, this is just more, this is just a, a, a more highfalutin, a fancier way of being a McCarthyist. And that's not what my intention was at all, but I can mm. understand why he would have thought that. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think that you had said that, but it was the guest. And, and that was like parroting something that I've heard in my own uh, social circles, which is uh, this is a Marxist movement because X, Y, and Z. It's what's being parroted on Fox News and everything. And it, it is an issue if we can't like 
say, if we can't continue that discussion, because this is what people believe. Uh, and, and where Corey was like shutting it all down, I think is because the rest of the world has moved on. But we haven't as Americans and we have to mm-hmm. have those conversations within our own social groups, which is just a, a consequence of us not actually dealing with these problems from before. Uh, do you think after the election, as we, as we wrap up here, do you mm-hmm. think after the election is over that it'll be easier for you and, and Corey to maybe come back? You think that uh, I, I think he'll come back to talk probably before the election. I think he'll probably come on to do like a three part series where we do a deep dive into um, the consensus policy platform that Biden and Sanders worked out mm-hmm. as another example of Biden being a uniter. OK, I'm looking forward to those discussions. Uh, I really, really am. And I wanted to thank you so much for allowing me to sit down with you and have this one on one conversation. Uh as I try to, to salvage the moving forward podcast, it makes me so sad, but I am happy that you are, are <laughs> pressing forward because I can tell, you know, this means something to you and it means something to the people who listen to the podcast too. Uh, and I honestly think that what you've chosen to do with these different progressive voices, it's going to work. I hope it will at least. Are, are you not concerned that you're going to drive yourself crazy? Um, like, cause you're not going to have other like, conservatives on you made that a point well, you know i mean I, I i it occurs to me for the first time ever right now that i may have had an advantage over hori the whole time we were doing that because i actually clearly have a lot more experience talking with highly informed and well-educated progressives mm. than he does talking to conservatives like me mm. right um and and so i i think i think that's that's not no, no fault of his own that's just the nature of our different lives right that i've just been in those circles and he hasn't um i I did want to clarify a few more things before 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 we totally wrap up um if you have time is that cool yeah 100 percent. yeah all right so one thing he brought up um and i tried to address this in a conversation with jenner but i really i want to clarify it further was uh the guest we had on eric for the um episode called uh alt left versus alt right Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the pieces of evidence the core used for Eric being racist, which again, granted, he might be right, right, right. Um, was that he talked about this 1619 thing. Did you you heard that conversation, right? Yeah, and I will say that the day after I heard on NPR a promotion for a series called 1619, uh, talking about, you know, this is a, a reanalysis of American history that we're gonna be discussing. So, like just on face value. The problem was, is I didn't look at his Twitter page, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like I was deeply offended by lots of things on his Twitter page, but it wasn't because he's ever said anything that was obviously explicitly racist. Right. What kind of things? Can you give an example? It's because he, he just he he. It, well, I mean, I addressed it in the conversation with him, you know, but okay. like this idea that we should be more worried about the alt left than the alt right. I just find that on its face, not true. Right. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he admitted it wasn't true. But he, to, I mean, in, in Eric's defense, he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried that that the Republican Party is going to lose and it's going to cease to exist in its current form. And then the real fight will be like liberalism versus Marxism. And I think he's right about that. Right? So, you know, like there's a, a black intellectual named Coleman Hughes who was on Quillette's podcast and also on Sam Harris's podcast. And what he said was he took issue not with the whole project. Right. But with the, you know, actually, like, it is a pretty core part of it. And in fact, it informs its name. 
Apparently, it's called the 1619 Project because they consider the real foundation of America to be the day that the first slave was brought over here and sold. And, and it's, it's reframing it. So it's not 1776. America really began in 1619 because ultimately, it's, it's from its beginning was always and forever about racism and slavery. And so Coleman Hughes, his problem was that he felt like it was very heavy handed. Mm. That the claim that the uh, Revolutionary War um, was only fought entirely because we wanted to keep slaves. It wasn't because we wanted to have a democracy. It, it basically, basically, the Revolutionary War was just as much about slavery as the Civil War, which is certainly a pretty contentious historical claim. Um, and so basically, like the, the the thing that a lot of people are reacting against it is they're not necessarily motivated by racism. They They could think that racism is bad and slavery is bad, but that slandering the entire foundation of the United States and making it all about that bad thing is missing the big picture. It's not, it's not actually taking the, 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 for example, not every single American revolutionary was racist. Lots of people supported freeing the slaves at that time, right? The constitution almost wasn't ratified for that reason. And in the end, it ended up being a compromise and nobody, it wasn't perfect. That's, you know, but thank God it happened anyway. Right. Otherwise it might've gone the route of UBI in the seventies. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that it's anti-American. That's mm. the problem. Not so, that it's, I mean, anti-racism is good. Anti-American is bad. That's, that's a distinction that I think is worth mentioning. It's that's a, that's a weird and a hard conversation to have. Like, how do you criticize so from like a Breitbart article, what is the concern? Like the, the concern is that it's anti-American. The concern well, Breitbart is, that is, is fascist, alt-right bullshit. Don't read Breitbart. Right, right. But like uh, coming from Corey, Corey's, Corey's objection to him bringing up this, this question, like, because me personally, I, I think we need to come more to terms with a better understanding of where we came from because our lack of ability to do that has led a, a lot of the problems that we're dealing with now. What would Corey's concern be about him bringing that up? Do you think? Um, because, because again, um, and I don't mean to be mean to Corey in saying this. In his own experience, which everybody's experience is limited, mm. he's only seen that brought up in the context of like Breitbart or Donald oh. Trump. And so, of course, he's going to be like, "Well, that's that's nonsense." I've only heard Breitbart and Donald Trumping. But again, Sam Harris, who's a liberal, oh. and Quillette, which is not Breitbart, right? Right. Okay have also had issues with it. So the idea that only far like extreme alt-right people have, have criticized it isn't just, isn't true. Yeah. Do you think that there would be value in having a conversation with someone who, who was racist, right? In, in, in trying to uh, like, is that, how far do we go to try and find consensus? You think? Well, Corey, actually that was one of the things that I wanted to address because Corey brought up the, the uh, editorial control thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually agree with him about that. I think that editorial control is incredibly important. Mm. And I don't invite someone on, on the podcast without taking it very seriously. And of course, I'm not going to necessarily draw the line in exactly the same place that you would or Corey would because we're different people, right? right? But I definitely believe in drawing the line somewhere. I think that there are some people that are just not worth platforming. Mm. Um, you know, so another example of that, that, so anyway, Eric, I brought on because I wanted to have a conversation about how, what the American left used to be just a decade ago and how those people a lot of those people are are reacting negatively to the to the radical um what they perceive as a, a radical shift within the party that's like that's what i wanted to talk about i didn't want to talk about the race stuff that was yeah. just 
that's, you know, it's not a co- co- positive, it's not a, it's not a, uh, I mean, it's, it's a healthy thing to talk about sometimes, but it's not a pleasant thing to talk about. No. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I definitely draw the line somewhere. And so like another example that Corey used was that my friend, Matt, um, and I use the word friend in air quotes at this point, I've known him since we were kids. He's a hardcore Trump supporter. Corey didn't like that. I called him a smart Republican because he said he was just a dime store Republican. You remember that? Mm. Um, Again, I didn't bring him on because I just want to platform endlessly Trump supporters, right? Literally was the only one that we've actually, I think we've had two. One of them was like a Trumper for Yang or something like that, right? Right. But we've had very, very few Trump supporters on, right? For a podcast that's trying to be post-partisan, right? Right. We've been really strict and haven't had a lot of Trump supporters on because that's how bad we think that movement is, Mm. right? Do you think it's because? Well, the whole point was I wanted to make a distinction between Trump's base, which is a lot of like relatively left leaning, certainly within the context of the Republican Party, economically left leaning working class voters who like Donald Trump. Right. I wanted to make a distinction between that and uh, a more elite, elite member of 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 Trump's movement, which is motivated by smarter. okay, but Mm. also very evil motivations, which is basically like, you know, Matt thinks that democracy will inevitably lead to communism and he just doesn't believe in the democratic process and he actively wants to end democracy in America. Wow. Right. Yeah. And that was the conversation I wanted to have because that is for one thing. And also he, he used blood and soil, right? He used the phrase blood and soil. Uh. So I, I wanted to show people like, yeah, like th- we are dealing with actual Nazis who want to end democracy. This is a thing that's existing. And, 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 and you know, and Matt is my enemy. And I've told him that I said, like, you know, you're you're a piece of shit. Right. Because mm-hmm. he is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my reason for having him on, not because I was I wanted to platform that perspective just for the sake of, you know, oh, gosh, I hope that some of our listeners become Nazis, too. No, right. I want people to understand that it's not hyperbole when we say that Trump is supported by Nazis. And that. There's no way to really reach some people. Uh, that's that's a, that's so because you don't want that to be the case. That 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 because mm, that, yeah, that's I what the movie I, did, I, I, was, I, w- I wasn't thinking that I was going to persuade Matt. Like that was clearly not going to happen. I wanted to make sure our listeners understood his perspective precisely because it is so dangerous. Mm. Mm-hmm. You think? You think that they did? Yeah, I think the, the people listening to that episode probably got it. Yeah, I've I've actually had several listeners tell me that you know I used to think that Democrats were just being, especially more conservative listeners. I've heard them say I used to think the Democrats were being hyperbolic when they said that you know this is fascism or Trump's a Nazi. But after listening to your podcast, Rio, I know now that that is not hyperbole. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think we made the point. Okay. I think that's. Oh, give me just one one moment. To process, I know it's scary as fuck, right? Yeah, yeah, no, everything just left my train of, of thought here. I wanted to thank everyone so much for for listening through to me today because I I normally talk a little faster. I'm a little more energetic and everything, but uh, I wanted to make sure to get this out oh, while I wouldn't it, sell it yourself short. Fresh. I think you've done a great job, and I oh. I appreciated all of your input and your questions. Uh, all right, so in my final statement, my closing, and then you can you can close out yourself and ask mm. me any additional questions you have if you have any stuff to leave you. Uh, but basically, you know, the the last thing that I wanted to address from Corey's conversation with you was what he called the never Trump Republicans Faustian bargain. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that is really getting to the heart of an actual disagreement. And I just want to say 
you know, if you listen to the 130 episodes and you've listened to a lot of them, it's clear that um, I've always said that I thought that that was a Faustian bargain. I've mm -hmm. always opposed it. I always thought it would be much better to make an honest argument for economically right-wing policy as opposed to trying to distract people with, you know, wedge issues that are explicitly race baiting, et cetera. It's, a, it's not good, right? I, I, that's not a good thing. And, and it did blow up in the party's face exactly like I thought it would, right? Um, and also keep in mind, you're, you know, Republicans in California are nothing, nothing like, uh, like, like Trump Republicans. Um, but they are, too many of them, failing to stand up to him, even though they disagree with him. And that is because of partisanship and because of fear of being primaried. And that is seriously, they're traitors, every last one of them. So Republicans both, both in California. Out. Yeah. Saying. But like, but it's not because they agree with Trump about anything like they don't. Right. Or in New York. Right. Like, like a, a Republican in California or in New York is like a, you know, a, it's basically a Democrat, frankly. Under no circumstances at all, will they ever vote for Biden? Oh yeah, no, lots of them will. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I was saying in like Republicans in the house or in the Senate, right. Right. In blue States are much more liberal than the hardcore Trump supporting Republicans. And that the reason they're voting, they, the reason they didn't vote to oust Trump was purely about self-serving politics. It's not because of their actual value system. It was a betrayal of their actual value system. It, it feels like our, our, uh, this experiment for democracy is failing and it, it failed throughout this presidency their their failure to to actually yeah so i just wanted to clarify i definitely i always opposed it i still oppose it i am not to be clear i am not advocating for the democrats to start using that same kind of strategy that that failed that backfired on the republicans i don't want that at all mm -hmm. at all okay as far as i'm concerned every racist piece of shit can fuck off we don't need their vote i don't want them Mm -hmm. That's not where I'm coming from, but I am worried about alienating liberals. Okay. I'm worried about standing up for liberal values against its enemies on the far left and the alt-right. That's where I'm coming from. Gotcha. And it's, you know, and, and I feel like that's what got lost in translation. Yeah, no, I think it's a good concern to have. Do you, do you share the concern that I have that if Biden gets in and doesn't do anything significant, that we'll have a resurgence uh, from the worst qualities of the right that we see right now? I think even if he does, the left will never be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think we both I mean, just look at the that. way they shit all over Obama's legacy right now. I mean, it's just shameful, mm -hmm. frankly. I, it, I, I find it despicable. Yeah. Moving forward, we're going to really have to find ways to have these hard conversations or else uh, problems are going to have. So, you know, I commend you for what you're doing. And I think uh, I'm looking very forward to seeing what is to come from the moving forward podcast after yes, and this. Th thank you for agreeing to be one of our recurring co-hosts slash guest stars, whatever term you prefer. Uh, I really look forward to having lots of conversations with you. We, we touched on all kinds of things we can talk about for the next, the next 130 episodes. I want to do a deep dive into the notion of techno shamanism on the next discussion. So all of our listeners can be uh, very excited for that discussion. Totally all right. Down. Rio, you got anything else you want to say before we go? No, I got it all out, believe it or not. All right. Uh, wait, wait, really quick. When did it change from taco to gumbo? <laughs> well, okay. So um, one of our very first guests, maybe even our actual first guest, uh, way back in, in the day, like episode three or four, was uh, Scott Santons, right? And Scott came up with Andrew Yang as our taco. Yeah. 
because you know andrew yang is our taco everybody loves tacos we have different you know we, we may disagree about other things but we both love tacos so andrew yang was our taco for about 100 episodes and then once andrew yang dropped out we had scott santons on again and this was not intentional this is not by design it just happened organically and he said you know it can't really be a taco anymore because you know who you know he's dropped out he can't really be our taco but you know, um, you know, gumbo has all these different ingredients, and you still, you know, like you, you could be, you know, one part of the one part of the gumbo, and and, and you can keep your individuality, but together you make this yummy, tasty thing, right? Mm. And so moving forward is like gumbo. Moving gotcha. forward is our gumbo, and so that's what we replaced the taco with. It was because of Yang dropping out. But in both cases, it was 100% Scott Sands' idea. It was not something that Corey and I thought of. Is that why Chet's uh, handle is Utopian Taco, or probably? Just a happy coincidence. Poor guy. That, that handle doesn't work anymore. I feel for him. All right. Or, or maybe not. I don't know. Actually, I did never ask him why. Maybe he just also really likes tacos. It might be a really cool coincidence. Well, in that case, you know, I've got family down in New Orleans and I love me a good bowl of gumbo. So <laughs> yeah, Andrew too. Yang is our gumbo. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Moving forward is our gumbo. And uh, Andrew Yang is part of that. He's a he's the spice in the gumbo. I love it. And with that, we'll sign off. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hey, it's Seth, host of The Dividend Report. I'd like to thank Rio for the conversation today. More importantly, I'd like to thank you, the awesome Moving Forward community. These conversations are hard, and getting even harder as we near the election. If you share my hope that discussions like these can happen more frequently, support the Moving Forward podcast at movingforwardpod.com. Look after yourselves and your mental health. Things are going to get better. I'll catch you all soon.